Hi, this is Sergeant Betsy Brantner-Smith with the National Police Association, and this is the NPA Report. I have a guest today that I have wanted to bring on this show for at least a year. Um, we have known each other for such a long time, and uh, she continues to do some extraordinary work in the first responder community. Um, she is a veteran, a cop, a mom, and uh, just a compassionate and well-educated individual who's really invaluable in the first responder community. And I thought all of America needed to meet her. Uh, Dr. Johnson, welcome to the show. Thank you, Betsy. <laughs> so talk about, uh, first of all, you know, just talk, talk about you. How did you get into um, first responder mental health services? So I'm prior veteran Air Force, right? I did two enlistments. And when I got out, I did a little bit of everything. So from bail bonds to PI work, I even sold Avon, right? So I just started kind of looking around and I, I got asked to come to a small agency and I was the only female that had been there. So I kind of felt honored to go um, through, through that. The actual only other female in my academy class was actually killed in a vehicle accident, you know, driving too fast for conditions, not properly seat belted. So I actually started down that road looking at our vehicle accidents and why we were dying and things that we didn't need to be dying in. And during my research, I actually started uncovering, you know, suicides and it kind of boggled my mind. I had no idea. So I ventured down that road and felt really driven and led to go that way. And once I started, I couldn't believe how many other people did not know that this was a leading killer. In fact, now that we track it, we know that this has been going on for well over 90 years, almost 100 years is our first noted suicide. So it's not new, but we need to bring more attention and be able to reduce some of these deaths. So what are you doing? Because this is something we talk a lot about uh, with the National Police Association is police officer suicides, because exactly what you said, I don't know if the public knows how bad the problem is. I'm not sure most law enforcement officers really understand how bad the problem is, even though every one of us has been touched by uh, a, a colleague committing suicide. Talk about that. Sure. So I guess, you know, even looking statistically, because right now I do research as well, statistically speaking, suicide isn't really an issue if we want to look at just the numbers, right? But the idea is, you know, where, where we kind of come in is, listen, these are family members. These are loved ones. These are peers. So to me, it's not a number, right? It's not a number. And we're not going to say that it's not statistically, you know, significant because the number is low compared to the population size. We do the same thing that Leoka does. We look at those officers that are killed and injured. And if that's a leading cause, then we need to get down to the root of why it's happening so that we can reduce it, right? So statistically speaking, it's not an issue. But to me, these are family members. And we know that by the research alone, every time we have a suicide, we have a greater chance of a child dying by suicide in the family, right? We have all these extra risk factors. So every person that's touched by a suicide, they're actually looking at those numbers being in the hundreds of people that are actually like that ripple effect, if you will. They used to think it was like three to six people, but it's actually hundreds of people that are touched by that suicide. So we can have a lot of issues down the road as this plays out. So you, when you started to discover all the different ways that, you know, police officers, you know, lose their lives, and then you got into to this part of it, um, you decided to go back to school, right? Right. 
Yeah, I was actually working on my master's when I started my first dissertation on the vehicle accidents and started right then. I said, nope, I'm done. I literally had it almost finished and said, nope, this is not the route I'm going, though I do believe because of that, I actually realized that there were probably a percentage, I would say probably 10% of our line of duties that I would consider to be suicide deaths, though we'll never know, you know, are one, some of those one vehicle accidents. And I can even tell you in the data, I've had several cases where people have run in, claimed it was a line of duty, gave the whole funeral procession, then found out later that this individual shot themselves while driving. So I've seen that happen several times, even recently, um, or a gun cleaning accident. I mean, that's still, you know, not as prevalent as it used to be, but, you know, that's really part of the problem with what some of the narratives that are going around. And that's where we're noticing that we need to kind of stop the train here for a second. And we need to reevaluate what's really going on. How did the Blue Wall Institute um, come to be with all of this? Because you guys do a lot. Talk about how you founded it and then talk about what you do. Sure. So um, I actually founded it just by doing my research and kind of really digging into the wellness side of it. And it's more of we look at health, wellness and safety because those three things go together. So we look at everything from officer wellness. We look at suicide inoculation training. We look at stress and anger management. We even venture out into things like stalking and protecting your online presence. So we do a lot of different things that protect people from different venues and different vantage points. Um, we just felt that there needed to be something out there, you know, not only, you know, is it a female owned business, we're veteran owned, but, you know, we're just, we're just proud to be able to represent and serve the first responder communities, oftentimes that are kind of out of sight, out of mind, if you will, we kind of swing into favoritism and then we swing out very quickly and we're kind of here for the long haul. And we know that there's a lot of personal things going on in people's lives and they need a safe place that they can go and we meet them where they're at. That's one of the difference, you know, we go where, where you're at and we serve you no matter where you're at. You may be in the depths of despair right now and we're going to be there with you and we make relationships, right? It's about connection. It's about relationships based on our research and data. We know that those things are important. And that's what keeps people calling me. I've never, I, I don't go out looking for work. It finds me. So we've been very blessed. Um, one of the things that things that most recently you've gotten into is that you just brought it up is the doxing is protecting a police officer and their family's online presence. How um, prevalent is that now that police officers uh, or their families are being doxxed, are being stalked, are being harassed. Well, and stalking has gone up dramatically with, with COVID and us being isolated at home. People are being stalked online more now than ever. So it's actually a really big problem. And families don't realize the kind of information you're putting out there and you're sharing, how, how it may seem seemingly innocent. I mean, even our newscasters, when they'll put a story out, they have a license plate showing, they have people's full names on there. I'm like, you know, you're putting people at risk. I mean, though these are statistically speaking, small numbers, it doesn't take much to find people online. And when you have all day to do it and you have a group of people that might be looking for our officers, right? That's what their job is because they don't work. We we have issues like this and it's really serious. I mean, we've got to be more conscious about how other people are viewing the information that we are sharing and how dangerous it really is. People think that uh, trauma for a police officer is you know, primarily an officer-involved shooting, things like that. But trauma truly uh, can be so many different things depending on the person, right? Oh, absolutely. And how one views it compared to another. What may be traumatic to you may not be to me. And, you know, and we also, I think we forget in this line of work is that 
certain people are called to this work. And I think sometimes we even have a past with trauma and, and certain things in it that we kind of push down and we think we're doing well. What our data actually noted in our sui completed suicide cases were cases of things in the childhood, you know, adverse childhood experiences, abuse, trauma that we had pushed down. And because we pushed it down and were able to go on to our occupations and, and life, if you will, we thought we were okay. So what we started seeing is in our 40s and 50s, that trauma that we had as younger people started coming out, but we could not line up the trauma and the effect on us, right? So something happened in our, in our, our childhood or in our you know earlier days and something happened at work, but because the two didn't line up, they weren't making sense to us. So we started having relationship problems. We started acting out. We started doing things that were not socially appropriate, but we're not talking about that. So- how has this last two and a half, almost three years of the extraordinary vilification of the American law enforcement officer affected affected what you do, affected the police officers that you deal with? And I want to talk about how all that affects their families. Can you can you dive oh, in yeah. a little bit? Well, I mean, I can tell you just by speaking with hundreds of, of officers across this country when I train you know, they're really struggling. And, um, and what I'm seeing right now is I'm not seeing necessarily an influx of suicide because sadly, I think that's coming. We have stretched this rubber band for so long that it's either going to snap at one end or it's going to come back together and it's going to hit. And either way, we're going to have tragedy. And that's what I'm seeing because these officers have held on for a long time under extreme stress. And it's not just the job and it's not just the community. It's the way they're treated at work. It's the bureaucracy, the red tape, right? And then they get home and they have families who call me and they tell me, Olivia, we don't want them working anymore. We want them to quit. And I say, but you've got to make money. You have bills to pay, right? This is what they love to do. And so we have this, this person going back from, from work, going home into a family who's now not supportive of them either and what they're doing. So it's causing a rift. And we're seeing that in the data. The data is showing the leading issue leading to completed suicide are re interpersonal relationship issues. So we have officers who are not only not feeling supported in their jobs with the community and people being upset with them and, and their administrators, but they're not seeing the support that they need at home either. So there's no soft place, if you will, for them to fall and to let their guard down. So they're hypervigilant 24-7. And that can be extraordinarily um, uh, just dangerous and harmful to a, a police officer, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you're finding ways to unwind. You're drinking more. You're not eating right. You're eating high fat foods. You, you know, you're not sleeping right. You're, you're having all these additional issues that put you at risk for bad outcomes. And that's really where we come in is we play risk managers. You know, we are trying to mitigate risk. And it might be because growing up, I had an older brother who kind of got in trouble here and there and a younger sister. And my mom worked all the time. So I constantly could see these bad things getting ready to happen. And I would try to, you know, help avoid those if you could. And, and the idea is we're looking at this in a risk management type of mindset where we can see bad things happening. We can see that when you're not getting enough sleep, that you can have an accident. In fact, you're more apt to have an accident than you are if you were under the influence. Research shows that. So we look for these risk factors and we're really trying to, you know, reduce risk in as many areas as we can to reduce a negative outcome happening to the officer or the family. So you are, and I love how data-driven you are. I mean, that's one of the things that that makes what you do so extraordinary is you back it up with facts and data. So uh, you have a new book coming out, right? 
I do. It actually came out in November. It's called The Practical Considerations for Preventing Police Suicide. So talk about that. What is the impetus behind the book and and what what are you seeing in the data and what's been the response to the book? Sure. So um, one of the biggest reasons that I started collecting data, which led to this book, was because we got tired of hearing a number being thrown around. And this number had no, number one, it wasn't, there was no validity in it. We couldn't show what first responders are being addressed. We've had record numbers being thrown around, which, you know, we can't, still can't verify. And I'm like, no, that's one of the things we don't do is we don't throw numbers around. What I do is I verify every single case. And we do that differently than anywhere else. We have the only database in the world that looks at 122 data points. So we do autopsy, toxicology, police report, social media. We do a psychological autopsy on every case. Sometimes the family members and peers will actually do an interview with us. And they answer a 227 you know, questionnaire, if you will. And they get back with us on as much information as they can. And we look at why did this happen? And, you know, and we're getting great reviews on the book. We're actually giving out free e-copies. We would love to do that for your listeners as well. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, what what we, we are not making money on this book. I mean, this is just what I, this is my purpose. And what we want to do is we want to stop this from happening. But one of the, um, one of the things, sadly, that's going around that's really kind of a false narrative, if you will, is the idea that it's PTSD and the job are all driving these suicides. And I'm going to be really honest with you, that's not true. And there are some big organizations putting that out because it makes people feel better about what's happening, but it does nothing to help us because we lack funding in those areas. We don't get proper training and education. And this is still going to continue happening. In fact, we're going in the wrong direction here. We're giving out money when we have a suicide death, not of families. Now we love our families, Betsy. And this is why we do what we do is to stop this from happening to other families, but we're going in the wrong direction when we're paying out for suicide deaths. And we're going to see that sadly in the future. So we're trying to change the narrative and show because we are data-driven and research-based that we have stuff out there to show you PTSD and anxiety were noted in about 700 of our cases. So we did a snapshot from 2017 to 2019. PTSD and anxiety were noted in 15% of our cases. Depression was noted in 32%. So we are missing depression. We don't recognize it for what it is. And depression isn't sexy. It's it's okay to say you have PTSD. This happened because of the job. But saying that you have depression, that is a no-go for anybody. So what happens is we're going on emotion. And it makes people feel better to say that it's job-related so we can blame something. When the truth is, part of this is job-related. But it's job-related in the sense that now you're not taking care of yourself properly. You're self-medicating. You're going untreated many times if you have depression for many years. In fact, research shows that people that suffer with depression go three to five years before they get a proper diagnosis. Now, you put that in an occupation where we are self-medicating with alcohol and or drugs, and we're going to have a serious problem. So I want to talk about that. In fact, I want to talk about something that's kind of controversial. A couple of things. Uh, one, again, we're seeing as we travel the country and train cops for officer survival, we um, are seeing the, that same thing where now young, especially young police officers are being told they have post-traumatic stress because they saw a dead baby at an accident or they uh, saw, a, you know, a, a homicide. I mean, things that are just very de rigueur for a police officer. Now they're being told because you've seen this abnormal thing, abnormal for a, a non-police officer, you now have post-traumatic stress. Are we over-diagnosing and improperly diagnosing post-traumatic stress? 
Well, and I'm not a clinician, but I will say that I think oftentimes we're self-diagnosing. I've had friends that have called me and said, Olivia, I have PTSD. I go, really? When did you get diagnosed? He goes, well, I haven't, but I know. I said, listen, I'm a child of abuse growing up. And I'm pretty sure that I struggle with things. But I said, that puts you in a box, right? It puts you in a box that now you think that something's wrong. So now you have to act differently. You know, we're very resilient people. And it's it's not saying that because you have PTSD that you can't do this job and you can't do other things. But we've got to stop just blanketing that on everything. And we got to stop blaming that and the job on these suicide cases. Because the truth is, suicide isn't one issue. It's a combination of things going on. We even address the hiring process and the testing that we use. You know, Betsy, one of the things that we don't want to talk about in my suicide data um, is number seven on the fatal 10, which is being under investigation. There were only several cases where officers were under investigation for an officer-involved shooting, and they were merely waiting to be cleared. That The rest of them were under investigation for child pornography or child sex crimes. And again, you can't say the job caused this. So we do have some issues here that we need to address. And we need to be honest, open, and transparent about these cases so that we can get to the bottom of how these are happening and why they're happening. And you're absolutely right. As, as a, another clinician once told me that, you know, when you break your leg, you wouldn't self-diagnose and say, I have a broken leg. You'd go to the emergency room and have somebody set your leg. We can't do the same thing with post-traumatic stress. We've got to go to a clinician who can diagnose, you know, what is happening uh, with you emotionally as well as physically. The other controversial thing I want you to address is something that is a big debate in our profession. Um, and that is making police officers suicide a line of duty death. Give me your thoughts on that. Uh, I'll give you my thoughts. And this is the, this is what I share. I do not believe that any of the suicide should be line of duty. And I'm going to, you know, be very clear about that. Number one, we're going in the wrong direction here. You know, we have individuals who are dying in the line of duty and they should be honored in a certain way. Suicide is not a one issue thing. There are many things going on here. And I've seen agencies where there's been a couple days after a suicide has occurred, they came back and ruled it a line of duty because the individual was a great officer or very well liked. That's dangerous. Number one, you don't know what happens behind closed doors. Number two, when we start making line of duty determinations on suicide deaths, we're going to have an increase in suicide deaths, which is exactly why we're working against this. And, it, you know, we can't prove that it was a line of duty. You know, one, two, three cases even that you've been involved in that were traumatic do not make that a case for suicide. So we've got to be really careful here. Sadly, the people making these determinations don't talk to the experts in the field and they don't they don't get a really good feel for it. Again, we're going on emotion because it makes people feel better. It makes families feel better. But here's the problem with suicide, Betsy. And this is one of the things that we've discovered is that, you know, we love our families. But when you have a suicide, it makes everybody be quiet. It's, it silences those from speaking because now you're a bad person if you don't agree that family should make money off of this and should get something to help, you know, fill the gap when their loved one passes away. We're not looking at that. We're looking at preventing this from happening in the future. So we don't go on a lot of emotion. We feel horrible, which is why we work day and night. I mean, I've got thousands of cases. I literally spend every waking moment doing this in between my real job. And we're trying to figure this out as fast as we can. But, you know, we're not out here you know, trying to make a name for ourselves. We're not trying to be important. We're just trying to stop this from happening. And people need to take a step back, take the emotion out of it and look deeper. We're not even doing a psychological autopsy on these cases. We're just determining it by the way we feel. And that's absolutely ludicrous. 
Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And yeah, we live in a society where feelings are everything. And yeah. uh and and the data not so much. So where can people go to uh find the book and 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 learn more about what you're talking about? So Springer actually published us. So I will end up sending you an e-copy that you can send out to your listeners or we'll get it to them in some way. So they'll get a free e-copy and they can just Google the Blue Wall Institute and they'll find out more about what we do. But we, we, you know, just really are trying to save lives here. And that's really our purpose. See, and that I really want to emphasize that because you are absolutely trying to solve this problem and this is what you do with with all the training and and all the you know i think what people don't probably don't know about you is uh you know you do so much training online on the road you know you're away from home more than your home probably right right <laughs> yeah and it's and it's such such important work that that you do so tell people again where can they find you um where can they read some of the articles that you've written and uh, how can they bring you in to do some training? Sure. So we have articles all over police one, corrections one, law officer, Um, just Google my name and usually something will pop up. Hopefully it's good. Right. (laughs) And, uh, and yeah, you know, just reach out to the Blue Wall Institute and, and you can reach us for training. We travel all over the world and it's really, it's kind of our purpose is just really to reduce risk and save lives. Well, I'll tell you what, I cannot thank you for spending time with me today and and talking about uh, this issue in a very logical, data-driven, but compassionate way. Thank you so much for spending time with us. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. Last year, law enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of use of force incidents. A use of force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation. Put the knife on the ground. In many cases, officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use of force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de-escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now and complain later.